0: Welcome to Investment Uncut.
1: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
0: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
1: Hi, everyone. So this week on Investment Uncut, we are doing another book club episode. We're going to be talking about the book Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed. And joining us in that discussion is Larsia Shakeran, consultant at LCP and also the chair of our multicultural network. Larsia, welcome.
0: Hi, thanks for having me on your show today. Hi, year Welcome. Could you just give the readers a little bit more detail about your role at LCP, both on the sort of client-facing side, but also the work you do with the multicultural network?
2: Sure. So I'm in our investment consulting department and I do a mix of client-facing work and research. So on the client side of things, I advise a number of different trustees and sponsors on pension schemes ranging from kind of 50 million to 50 billion in size. And on the research side of things, I'm involved with our modeling team. So I do a lot of asset class assumption setting. But another part of my role at LCP that I'm extremely passionate about is I chair the LCP Multicultural Network, which is one of our employee led diversity and inclusion networks that focuses on anti-racism and sort of celebrating the cultural diversity of everyone at LCP and across our industry.
0: Fantastic, which makes you a very good guest to come and help us review this book on Rebel Ideas. And I guess just to kick us off for any listeners who haven't read the book, could you give a very quick overview of the book itself and kind of what you took from it?
2: Sure. So as he said, the book's called Rebel Ideas and the idea of a rebel idea, is something that may be different to what the status quo or the standard idea is that's known about. And this book covers loads of different areas, but the general focus is around cognitive diversity and diversity science. So it uses a lot of data, examples, studies, and stories that cover really, really different areas to talk about diversity, why it's important, when it can go wrong, and how you can fix that. Some concepts that seem to contradict each other, but actually support each other. And it kind of relates to our everyday lives, the workplace, but also some really huge political events and things like that as well. Does that cover the question?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and I suppose what the author I think is trying to do is he's trying to build the case, isn't he, for a sort of diversity program and the sort of diversity agenda like you say, through referencing the science, building up through stories, learning from history, learning from mistakes, and all those sort of things. And I guess the other point for to make is that I think he alludes to a lot of the work that's been done on individual biases in the past, like those are getting more and more well known. But I've thought this as well, that the biases that groups of people exhibit is a bit less well studied. And that is really the key, isn't it, here? It's kind of you know, so the whole point of diversity is we're talking about groups of people having the diversity of thought within groups and it helps overcome some of those sort of biases so it's a sort of an un, slightly undercovered area of the whole bias thing
0: yeah so as you've both just referred to i guess the book is structured in a series of examples which either speak to science or speak to sort of real life examples and i guess as i was reading it i was trying to work out with each example Where was I surprised by that example? I think probably the very overall conclusion, if you knew what book you were reading, was probably quite obvious, but then some of the underlying stories, surprising or particularly interesting. Last year, did you find any particularly surprising?
2: Yeah, there were definitely a lot of surprising bits. For me, something that was really surprising is the stories that seemed to contradict each other, but then he explained how it didn't. So at the start, he goes to talk about how taking into consideration the ideas of lots of people and forming a consensus can be really useful for coming up with a good idea. But then later on in the book, he talks about how sometimes when you overuse averages, it can actually end up with a result that's kind of nonsensical and doesn't apply to everyone. So he gives an example about a pilot cockpit, and he takes into account lots of different sorts of measurements of different pilots, and basically what used to be done in the US to set the dimensions of a cockpit. So it would average the heights, the widths, the sort of other dimensions, shoulder, span, that kind of thing, of loads and loads of different pilots, and then come up with what the average of all of those was. But actually, the average wasn't a description of any single pilot. It was using too much averages, so it didn't actually make any sense. And he realized that it was kind of oversimplifying the problem and not really capturing the differences there. And he also related that to diets, which I thought was really interesting, because definitely nutritional science is not something I really know much about and not something I've ever come across in the context of diversity science. But he talked about how actually people can have very different responses to different diets. And if you just average all of those... You kind of mask the actual messages or mask what people actually need. And these two examples to me, they didn't seem like they had anything to do with each other, like pilot cockpits and then diets and nutrition. But actually, it was interesting to see how the same concept of diversity and averaging could really clearly explain what was going on with both of them so well.
0: Yeah, because in the cockpit example, I think the stat was really striking. It was something like, so you take the average and... You let yourself go 30% either direction, and then you see how many pilots in a group of, I can't remember how many thousands, actually fit into that average range, and not a single one did on every measurement. And I just thought that was so shocking.
1: It was brilliant, wasn't it? Because that was one of the stories where I was like, well, hang on, where's he going with this? And it took a while, and it's only at the end where they're like, the Nahini comes back and says, and there was not one single pilot that was average in all the dimensions. You're like... Okay, wow. Now I get it. That was a really good penny drop moment, wasn't it? I mean, he uses stories brilliantly in this, I think. I mean, it's one of my favorite things about the book. I think it's why I found it so easy to read. There's more and more nonfiction books these days, I think, that are written like that, but I do think he did this particularly well in that he seemed to find slightly new stories. I think I've heard sort of Steve Jobs and Pixar and those sort of stories like a million times now, and they kind of wash over me a little bit, but he seemed to unearth some really good ones and yeah like you say a few where you're like hang on where's he going with it and then really brings it home and it sort of really emphasizes it. i thought the one about the cia which he sort of kicks off the whole book with doesn't he and it's almost like an overarching story the fact that the cia wasn't diverse enough going into the events leading up to 9-11 and had they had more particularly more muslim people with a muslim background involved they would have picked up some of these signs and that since then that was was sort of recognized so that wasn't something that i'd seen or read before when i read that and it took me a little while to get my head around it but then i was like Oh, actually, yeah, okay, I do see what you mean now. Yeah, maybe that could have really made a difference.
0: For me, that was particularly striking, I suppose, because it was effectively there was an example there of people exploiting a lack of diversity so it's not just us sitting in our firm trying to create better performance and therefore a more diverse team is helpful and it's not even us having a more diverse team that means we identify certain risks better for example when thinking about investment but actually someone else looking at us for example and saying they're not very diverse therefore we can exploit that and I thought that really sort of stuck with me that point.
2: Yeah, definitely. For me, it was when he was telling that story through the lens of diversity, it made you see how many points in time there were when if there had been a more diverse team, they could have actually stopped it or prevented it from happening. And I also liked how later on in the book, he talked about what happened when they did have a more diverse team and they were able to stop other terrorist crimes from happening. So it was nice to see that actually it wasn't just hypothesizing there were these really clear concrete examples of what happens when you do and don't have a diverse team in the same organization.
0: Yeah and even in that CIA example the example where they said okay so post 9-11 they're then trying to clamp down and make connections between individuals but because the way that the names were recorded because they weren't western names was all completely different approaches being taken, it was very difficult to make those connections. I thought that was really interesting as well.
1: And and I suppose one point that he's driving at, I suppose you might say a key message of the book that, that comes through from that very first example is, I think he's sort of arguing that diversity is about improving performance. It's about creating better teams that can perform better. And it's not necessarily about sort of morality and the ethics of it and doing what's right. And I guess that seems to be an important point because I still don't know how well appreciated that is. I mean, I think there is maybe a lot of people out there who still believe that it's purely a morality and a sort of ethical thing, right? What do you think about that?
2: I mean, in my opinion, I think it's definitely both. I think there's been a lot of research that shows that diverse teams perform better and it's just better for the bottom line. But I think it can be a bit frustrating when that's the only area that's focused on because actually there are huge structural imbalances in our society caused by patriarchy and structural racism and years and years of centuries of oppression. And I think to ignore that and to say, actually, we'll only think about equality when it's good for profits or when it's good for performance, that's not good enough for me from a more kind of radical activist point of view. But of course, for businesses, diversity is really important for performance, and I think sometimes when you only look at the kind of morality side of things, people get this idea that there's a trade-off between performance and diversity.
1: Exactly, because he addresses that right at the start, doesn't he? Which I thought was brilliant because I'll be honest, I think I used to think there was a trade-off probably if you go back like 10 years or so, because that side of the argument had been so successful in framing it as a trade-off. I think he talks about some real examples in the U S with some senior court justices and stuff um, actually ruling that there was a decision between choosing the best people and choosing the most diverse team. And he uses the example, doesn't he? Of saying, well, if you're talking about a four by 100 meter relay team, then maybe you're right in that sense, because you can measure the ability there in very absolute terms. But from almost everything else, that just isn't so clear cut as that. And actually, the diverse team is probably better. And your metric for best is probably quite biased in itself as well. So I think it was really good that he attacked that sort of straight up, because I think that certainly was something that a lot of people were sat there thinking and, you know, a few years ago, certainly. I think it's that's being broken down a little bit in recent years, I guess, difficult to gauge, isn't it, how far we've come on that?
0: Yeah. And I really liked one of the examples that really stuck with me was where he talked about immigrants and he talked about how many of the most successful companies, I think it was focused on the US and I can't remember all the stats now, but effectively they were either immigrants themselves or children of immigrants. And it was almost every company that had been successful, everyone who'd been viewed as an entrepreneur, which I thought was again, really striking in terms of the stats and really brought the point home. And I guess where he gets to on it is the idea of what does he call it the outsider mindset which when you think about it, makes perfect sense that someone thinking slightly differently and someone putting themselves in someone else's shoes, of course, can lead to better innovation.
2: I loved that example. It made me feel very proud to be a child of an immigrant, hearing that child of immigrants. And, you know, I thought my parents would like that one too. But yeah, it's just the idea that you have these different perspectives. And sometimes it can feel like being an outsider is just going to make it harder for you to fit in in an organization, especially when traditionally during interviews, lots of people ask is this candidate a good fit
0: and
2: what does that even mean? But if you're somebody who's from a different cultural background and has different experiences, you may not be a good fit, but actually you may be really good for bringing about innovation. And sometimes I even think we should say, is this candidate a good fit? No. Okay. Then we should hire them because actually what (laughs) you need is people with these different outsider perspectives.
0: It made me think, how do you write a CV to best demonstrate the value you can add to a company? Because... The sorts of things that he was referring to that people had done in their past or the experiences that they'd had that were nothing to do with their technical qualification. University, they went to school, they went to all of those sorts of things that you typically write onto a CV. How do you write a CV to make it get you through the door, but also to demonstrate the sort of different viewpoints that you're going to bring? thought so it was quite an interesting question.
1: I think it's really hard actually right now I don't think it's widely enough valued and appreciated to make that work sadly would be my view. I saw so many of these things resonating in the investment space and just the one there that you were alluding to Mary was I think it was more from the chapter on constructive dissent with a sense of hierarchies and the influence of the most senior person in the room. I think you see that in finance and investing so much just because I do think that people are often too deferential to their clients or their senior people or whoever it is is.
2: I like the acronym he used, the HIPPO one, highest paid person opinion. I was like, oh yeah, I can think of a few times when that may have happened. But yeah, definitely. I think it gave really useful ideas too. Like the idea of getting the junior people to speak out before the senior people seems like something that would actually be really easy and quick to implement, but could actually make quite a big difference. And I thought, Dan, what you were saying about diversity of teams, you know, hiring from different degrees may not necessarily lead to demographically diverse people they may still look homogenous to an extent was quite interesting because this definitely last year looking back to kind of july and this is probably more specifically through my lens as the multicultural network lead we've seen a lot of companies, corporations, investment managers themselves talk about Black Lives Matter and say statements about how they are committing to, you know, black representation and that kind of thing. But is that something that we actually see in practice? I think that's another area where we as investment researchers can really be analysing and understanding and encouraging.
1: Yeah. And is the issue there a little bit that you perhaps some organizations are still hiding behind a little bit almost the shroud of saying well we're creating equal opportunity at the start we're just assuming that that's going to work its way through without appreciating all the structural and unconscious barriers that are actually there so it isn't quite enough just to say well you know we're opening up our graduate intake to everyone oh it might take 20 years for that to work through or maybe it never will because there's still those structural barriers aren't there and i suppose that's a key thing that i don't know how it has how widely that has been grasped
2: Definitely. And the other thing is, you see lots of companies saying, and this is also something that Matthew touched on in his book with the CIA example, they'll say that they're not getting applicants from diverse sources. But I think the way they define that, they're either having a very narrow frame of what they need people to be to be able to apply Or they're not reaching out correctly to the right pool of people if they're saying that they're not getting these applicants.
1: And the role models as well. I mean, we talked about this last week, didn't we, Mary, about the Women's Talent Academy that you're part of. If you haven't got role models, it's just self-fulfilling, isn't it? you haven't got role models from those particular groups, you are going to get less applicants. So it's no good standing there saying, hey, we would take the applicants if we got them. We're just not getting any. It's kind of like, well, go on then. Let's have a think about that.
2: I don't think you realize how much of a difference that stage makes to what you see higher up in the chain, which I think I can't remember the exact stat that was in his book. But it was something like if you have 10 percent less applicants coming in because of these structural barriers, unconscious biases, it can lead to 90 percent less representation at a senior level. I'm not sure if those were the exact right numbers, but it was just where it it was. If you've got 10% less
0: likely to get through at that first stage, 90% less likely to get to that senior role. It was definitely those. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, they're really shocking numbers, aren't they? When you see them written down like that.
2: Yeah. I wasn't expecting that.
0: So what other areas in the book that Matthew touched on do you think are particularly relevant for our industry?
1: I think echo chambers. the, The chapter on echo chambers really resonated with me. The fact that you can get these situations where, Groups of people keep telling each other what they want to hear, keep telling each other the same stories and are just not able to get exposure to alternative world views or alternative data. But he actually takes it one step further than that, doesn't he? Because he sort of says, well, actually, a lot of people think that the issue there is you're not getting exposure to alternative views. Often you might be getting exposure to it. But you're just impervious to it. You're literally being bombarded with data that sort of makes the other case, but you sort of can't change your mind, often because your identity is so tied up in your worldview. That it just makes it so, so difficult to change your mind. You sort of, you don't trust the source of the other information or whatever. And you see that all the time at the moment with sort of politics, don't we, especially in the US is one kind of, I think, like really obvious example of where you'd get those sort of echo chambers. But, you know, I think I've seen it on trustee boards, for example. I think you see it in asset managers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the scary thing about it is that actually hearing the alternative view strengthens the view that the person holds. In the examples with far right, in the US, which Matthew included in his book, and obviously we've had recent events that sort of demonstrate that. And the other example that I guess is particularly relevant at the moment was the anti-vaccine movement. So if the anti-vaccine movement says things that undermine the alternative view, which is that vaccines do work, then actually every time they hear someone say that vaccines do work, it actually just strengthens their view that they don't because they think they're being told lies which is the scary thing. But I guess the resolution that Matthew comes to or the example, I suppose, that he demonstrates in the book is actually if you hear someone who's got what you view as very extreme views, the way to combat that, if you think that they have an extreme view in the wrong direction, isn't to take the extreme opposite position or tell them that they're wrong or ridicule them or anything like that. It's actually to sort of befriend them is the example. Because as soon as they have trust, then they're much more likely to see the alternative viewpoint. And I guess the trust point is really key in that example.
2: Yeah, when I listened to that example, the difference between kind of informational bubbles and echo chambers, it did really make the penny drop for me because sometimes I find it really hard to understand. There's so much evidence, say with the vaccination example, there's so much evidence that vaccinations do work and that the studies that ever said that there were issues with them are hugely flawed, that how can people still read that and think that there's something wrong with vaccinations? But then I understood that actually, the way that they've been conditioned is to think that any evidence against what they believe is purposefully trying to mess with them and put them off. And actually, it's people saying the opposite to what they think is just more evidence that there's this whole group of people that are against you. And it really made me try and like put myself in the shoes of people that previously I probably just thought, like, how are people thinking like this? And actually wonder, are there any situations in my life where I could have been like that, maybe on the other side of things? And I think it's, as you said, the idea of building up trust and actually understanding what the other side is thinking that could really help with stopping this insane polarization we're seeing in the world at the moment.
1: It's hard though, isn't it? I think that's what I took away. I mean, it's a lovely example he gives of the kind of the people with very extremely different political views, but they have dinner together, they break bread, they become friends, trust each other, and their view softens or whatever. But you see very few, you tend to see very few examples in, let's just take it in a work context, of people who get on really well, but profoundly disagree on key things. I always think it's very powerful when you do. I have a lot of respect in some Times in my career, I've seen those people within certain firms. It's just very hard because if someone really disagrees with you, it's kind of like just drives a bit of a wedge between you, doesn't it, relationally? And I do think that's a key point. And it sort of gets to one of the things I thought when I read the whole book was this is great. And he's making all these great points. And I totally understand and get it all. Don't we need some more practical help with how we can make this diversity and these diverse viewpoints sort of work in practice. And then that's a great example because you might say, we've got an echo chamber. Let's puncture the echo chamber by having someone who is going to bring some really radically different views. Now that is hard. It's painful. You can't resolve those viewpoints very easily at all. And you just get stuck. It's really difficult, I think. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, that the first stage of the process of more diverse teams is actually more disagreement, more conflict, less confidence in what you're doing, none of which feels very good. So, I do think what I felt maybe was missing from the book, or maybe more likely is could be the next book, perhaps he's saving it for that, (laughs) (laughs) Is, is the more practical handbook. You know of how you make these things work, how you get through all that conflict, how you get through that disagreement, how you get yourself some more confidence that you're actually doing the right thing in these teams. Because the great thing about echo chambers, in some ways, is you're very confident in your view. Brilliant, we all agree, you know, perfect. As soon as you've got some diverse viewpoints, everyone's like, oh god, we got half an hour to decide this, and it just seems like, how oh, are we ever gonna come to anything? And all your confidence seeps away. So, I don't know whether you got any thoughts on that, but I just felt that's really missing generally, is work on how we really make that happen.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think the example he gave in the book with David Duke's godson, who is a very right-wing white supremacist becoming friends with somebody who's from an Orthodox Jewish background, that was amazing and extremely powerful. But personally, I don't think I'd ever be comfortable with making best friends with a white supremacist, like as a brown person, I just would not feel safe doing that. So I'm not sure that was the most practical example. But obviously, the outcome was so powerful that it would be really useful to have these kind of guidelines as to how you can build those relationships, perhaps in a safer way. And I think that was quite an extreme example. And hopefully in our workplaces, none of us have to deal with white supremacy. But I think there are other areas related, you know, to investment, to RI, responsible investment, ESG, climate change, you might see some people and investors not taking it as seriously as they should do, where actually there could be similar sort of polarizing opinions.
1: Yeah, or even just stuff like equity market valuation. Some people say, oh, this is ridiculous. The tech market is like another bubble, whereas other people might say, well, no, it makes perfect sense, like these companies are winning. And you probably, you do need both of those views sort of in the mix. I imagine those two people, a lot of times, would find it quite hard to get on because they just would wind each other up basically and you'd probably just avoid each other or something which is a bit of a shame.
0: Yeah I did think on equity market valuations the point where I thought about those was when we discussed it earlier but the dangers of averaging so clearly the average yeah. equity market valuation is being pulled up by some huge players in the market but if you then say to an equity manager "Well, look look where valuations are surely you can't find any good value here actually I'm sure they'd point to lots of examples because when you look at that average number it's really hiding quite a lot of detail.
1: Yeah, so one thing I guess I thought, I mean, I was a slight bugbear of mine, one thing that I was trying to reflect as I read through the book. I mean, Matthew, he's making a great case for cognitive diversity, I guess. And I think in his words, he says that it should be a basic ingredient of collective intelligence, diversity, not some sort of add-on that you put on at the last minute if you can, or for a quality purpose, so to speak. And I think that's great. I mean, I, fundamentally, I think I do agree with that. My one issue with focusing too much on cognitive diversity is that I've seen it used as a bit of a cover for situations where there actually isn't real diversity. So, for example, I, I've, I've genuinely been part of groups that were sort of all male groups, all white male groups, where people have sort of said, oh, no, but we're really cognitively diverse because we've got some extroverts, some introverts, behaviorally, we're quite different. I don't know, went to different universities, studied classics versus maths at Cambridge sort of thing. And I worry that cognitive diversity can be used as a bit of a cover for ducking. The real conversations about real diversity. So that was a tension in my head, I suppose, when I read the book. I get it. I agree with it. But it's a bit dangerous because if it's not handled properly, it can be used as cover. I don't know if that resonated at all last year with some of your experiences and stuff.
2: Oh my gosh, so much. Yeah, I've definitely <laughs> been told that very much by people, probably not in recent years, but maybe more than a couple of years ago, definitely before the Black Lives Matter movement really increased in the last year, I have definitely remember being told, like, why are we talking about race and gender when we should just be focusing on cognitive diversity or distracting from the problem? And actually, I think the thing that people need to understand is that although cognitive diversity and demographic diversity, which I think is what you were referring to when you said sort of real diversity, Dan, although they are different things, a, they are intrinsically linked because people from different backgrounds are likely to be more cognitively diverse. They're likely to have different viewpoints. They have that kind of outsider viewpoint that we talked about earlier. But also that structural imbalances that can lead to the lack of demographic diversity that we see in our sector, unfortunately, can also affect cognitive diversity and decision-making too in the long run. And it's really important that both are considered.
1: Yeah, Matthew in the book, he has a really nice way, I think, of describing that. He talks about unconscious bias hardens into structural disadvantage and you can really see that happening And that if people selecting candidates for university are biased against a particular group, let's say black people or women for example, then you'll have less of those people achieving those credentials and then that becomes a real disadvantage because then those credentials really matter for the workplace and stuff. And so then people can be saying, well, hang on, I just want to pick the best candidates. These people from this university or whatever are the best and you've created a situation there through unconscious bias where there's a real structural disadvantage which then shows it up in the system and is a bit hard to um, identify as that, I guess, on first blush.
0: I think the word that's often used in those scenarios is we're a meritocracy, and actually, I've almost come to associate the word meritocracy with a negative association because I've only really seen it in those examples where they're effectively using it as a cover for.
1: They're trying to argue against diversity, exactly. Yeah, and that's back to this false dichotomy, isn't it? That he talks about at the start. That you've framed the, you're onto a loser if you framed the issue that way from the start. If you frame it as meritocracy versus diversity, then then you're you just off on the wrong foot and. It's actually a great example of why framing is so powerful in conversations because if someone succeeds in framing it that way, you you, you sort of a foregone conclusion where you end up. But that's why I thought it was so great that Matthew addressed that early on in the book, because you you can almost give the book to someone now who thinks that it's like a prepackaged case for why that is the wrong way of looking at things. So you don't have to kind of figure it out yourself in the moment, which is always difficult to argue against it. You can just say, look, come on, here you go. This is the answer to why that's the wrong way of thinking about it.
0: Yeah.
2: Mary, I love that you mentioned the meritocracy thing. I think I have two pet peeves with the whole myth of meritocracy um, concept. The first is that the way that we define meritocracy is often somebody is really good if they're like me. So you know it's not really based on something that concrete or it's based on quite an old fashioned concept. And then the second is just this idea where, why do you think that people from diverse backgrounds would have less merit for some reason? It's like, we're just as good as everyone else. We just may have a slightly different
1: viewpoint yeah 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 I think it's just how biased the so called sort of objective meritocratic basis is It's very hard to understand how biased your so called meritocratic basis is, isn't it you really ultimately you just you probably are setting it up to be people like you, but you don't even know it. you can't even understand that, so it's quite tough to sort of debunk that, isn't it? But yeah, it feels like in the last few years there's been a little bit of progress on that front. Yeah. All right. Well, as we're getting probably towards the end of the episode, then, should we maybe each um, reflect on one of our favorite stories? Pick out one of the favorite little things that, that stands out to us. Mary, do you want to go first on that?
0: Yeah. So I've got a really quick one. It was not a big part of the book, really, I suppose. But there was an example where someone had done a study on people who work in call centers and they were looking at trying to find, I guess, a pattern to what led people to perform better, but also to stay longer in that particular job. And they looked at all kinds of different things, you know, the way that they'd been brought up, the types of schools they'd gone to, all of those sorts of things. And what they ended up finding the pattern was to do with which web browser the applicant used to do their online application. So the idea being that if you used Internet Explorer or Safari you were less likely to be thinking outside the box. And I'll come to why that's important in a call center. If you used Firefox or Chrome, you were more likely to think outside the box and that led to better performance and more longevity. And it was because the first two examples of web browsers are the ones that are automatically installed on your PC or Mac. And the second examples are the ones you have to actively have thought about what's the ideal web browser for me and go, actively and download and the reason why that then translates to better performance in a call center is because yes you probably get given a script but actually if you get faced with an issue that you don't have on your script you need to think a bit more outside the box or you're dealing with someone who's got a different approach to what the script assumes actually again thinking outside the box and that both leads to a better performance but also more job satisfaction because you're more likely to actually sort of take some pride in the work that you're doing which I thought was a really nice little you know very little example but also quite funny because the software we use to record these podcasts sits in Chrome, and it works much better in Chrome. And very occasionally, people try and join the link not using Chrome, and we have all kinds of issues. So it's sort of backed up the fact that I automatically use Chrome.
1: So I guess I, I found it a bit of a compliment, which always goes down well. So <laughs> fulfilling. Yeah, think about the browser you're using. Okay, nice. year favorite story to reflect on?
2: So I really liked one of the stories that was at the end of the book, which was to do with shadow boards. So the idea of a shadow board is a group of people that kind of sit next to the board of a company that are generally include junior people, include people across demographically diverse backgrounds, and they feed into all sorts of key decision making that the board will then make. So they'll have different insights based on their upbringing, their experiences, their cultural background, their outsider perspectives that they can then use to influence the main board. And the example that Matthew gave was about Gucci and Prada and how Gucci incorporated a shadow board and Prada didn't. And Gucci actually performed much better because they were able to identify trends with online influencers and that kind of online social media campaigning that Prada hadn't been able to do without the input from the shadow board. So I thought that was something that actually lots of firms would be able to implement, even if it's not a sort of formalized board. The idea of taking on the viewpoints seriously of people from different backgrounds across the firm. I really liked that idea. It's a really nice practical
1: example isn't it? Yeah it's really neat isn't it and it's a practical one exactly yeah yeah it's, it's really nice when you get to these practical examples that you could actually put into practice without too much difficulty. The one that stuck out for me and it's a bit of a sad one of course was the Everest disaster that he talks about in the chapter on constructive descent. For some reason that really grabbed my imagination and I spent a long time reading about it online It's the worst disaster they've ever had on Everest, I think. In 96 it was, a lot of people lost their lives, sadly. And they still don't exactly, they didn't come to one conclusion as to what actually went wrong. But a big part of that was the hierarchies and the status of different people and not questioning what other people said. And that really sort of stuck with me, especially, there was one quote, because the mountaineering teams were very experienced. They were all very experienced people. So you had the people who were the guide, but the clients in that instance were also as experienced as the guide and yet they didn't really speak up because the guide was this so-called invincible guide and there was this big narrative around you know on the mountain it's dangerous you must listen to me you know what i say goes and that was the accepted way of doing things on Everest cuz yeah you can have a vote about every little thing, obviously. But on reflecting, they did think that there was some of the very experienced people who could have maybe spotted that there were some issues and didn't say it because the guide was the one who was sort of in charge. So I sort of reflected on that, that often in our role as advisors or experts, it's important not to sort of inflate yourself too much into this kind of all-knowing, invincible role, because that's just a a bad place to get into.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Cool. All right. Last year, as we're wrapping up, a couple of questions that we always ask guests. I mean, what one thing would you like listeners to take away from this whole episode?
2: I guess I'd like people to take away the fact that both cognitive diversity and sort of demographic diversity that affects structural barriers are important. And even though they're not the same thing, they're very linked with each other and organizations need to address both of these areas together. Great. Well said. And
0: last year, this is obviously a book review episode, but we always ask our guests if they have any recommendations for the listeners. So are there any sort of books, TV shows, podcasts, films that you would recommend for listeners? Sorry, I've put you on the spot here. We didn't talk about this before, did we?
2: One book I definitely recommend that was referred to during the Rebel Ideas book is Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. She basically gives lots of different examples related to data about how things in the world have been designed to suit men and how that can disadvantage women. It makes you feel quite angry when you read it, especially as a woman, <laughs> but I think in a good way that makes you feel like, okay, there are changes that we need to make to our society.
1: Cool. Well, last year, this has been an absolutely great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. Thanks very
0: much, Last year. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care.